From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. My guests on this episode of Frankly Speaking are Jim Copenhaver, the president and founder of Pellucid Corporation, offering clear solutions for the business of golf, and Stuart Lindsay, the president of Edge Hill Consulting Group, based in Wisconsin. Our regular listeners will recognize Jim Copenhaver as a frequent guest on Frankly Speaking, with his contrarian view that has been questioning mainstream golf initiatives with data for more than 20 years. Our other guest today is the alter ego of Pellucid, Stuart Lindsay, president of Edge Hill Golf Advisors, with over 45 years of broad experience in golf. Stewart provides a unique perspective on the game, the business, and course management. And Stewart has just the right amount of smart and funny for me. We got together recently to discuss the impact of 2018 weather on playing golf, how golf participation is now measuring off-course data from places like Top Golf and Golf Simulators, And finally, their broad opinion on the value of an approach to growing the game that makes it fun. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking, fellas. I'd like to start with easy entry point for many of our golf course superintendents that are listeners that are always paying attention to the weather. As we have had you on before, Jim, and you for the first time, Stuart, I want to start with the sort of way you guys look at participation in golf, the way of looking at utilization of how you see there's potential rounds and the number of rounds that we fill up in the course of a year. And that's been particularly telling when you have such a weather impact. Typically, it's going to be impacted by temperature and light levels. But as soon as you start to get weather impacts, you know, it's no surprise that San Diego is the healthiest golf market in America. Uh, and it does, it's got perfect weather most of the time. So, Jim, let's start with you. It rained a lot in 2018. What kind of a perspective can you give to us about what the numbers say about golf in 2018? Yeah, thanks, Frank. Basically, the storyline in 2018 was uh, in the past when rounds go down, which they did about 5% in 2018, the U and cry goes up. It was the weather. And when rounds go up, then the you and cry is it was exceptional management and being endless by trade. Stuart and I are both, you know, BS. Um, so we set out to track that and quantify it. And in 2018, for one of the first times since he and I started tracking it over 10 years ago, it in fact was the weather. So the top lines were rounds were down 5%, golf playable hours that we track were down 6%. So that means that utilization, which is played rounds over available rounds, actually went up by a point to 54%. So 18 is one of the recent years that I can recall that the golf industry cried foul on weather, um, and we were actually able to quantify that and say, yeah, you're right. The other thing uh, on the weather was that it was an abysmal year relative to the 10-year average. So somebody might say, well, the weather was down, but the baseline was low. Um, we were actually 5% off the 10-year average. That's an incredibly abnormal year. Most of the time, the weather will bounce around plus or minus 2% on that 10-year average. So two points was an abysmal year last year. We will get relief in 2019, 
And for once, the 5% decline in rounds was not due to a lack of interest by the golfers. It was solely due to lack of availability of playable weather to get out there and do it. So that was particularly acute in it. It felt like in the mid-Atlantic and and in some parts of the Northeast. Can you give our listeners a perspective regionally, right? I mean, obviously, again, in in places like San Diego, their rounds are not necessarily going to be impacted as much by weather, unless, of course, it's by fire. But can you talk specifically about regions that were hit particularly hard, Jim? Yeah. So, for example, I'm looking at you guys on the radio can't see. Uh, I'm looking at the national map that's broken by 45 regions, and on that map there's a red arrow for down, a black arrow for flat, and a green arrow for up. Uh, This thing is just a sea of red. So let's take the exceptions, which were up. So Central California Valley was up for the year. South Central California Valley Central and North were up for the year. Northern California Coast, which is the San Fran Bay Area, was up and then the Pacific Northwest Coast. Those are the only green arrows out of the 45 regions that we track across the country Hmm. that were ups versus downs in 18. So I would say the carnage was pretty much fairly widespread, and what was spared was California and the Northwest Pacific Coast. So what was the biggest off? You get our weather stuff. New York was off. You know, you track facilities across New York State. Right. They were off from 9 to 12%. So some of them, that's the point I'm trying to make. Thank you for that, Stuart. Listen, when I talk to people who manage golf courses for a living, they were telling me they couldn't even get out and do the work. What I think that's the most fascinating about this discussion is that while the weather brought overall rounds, amount of rounds down, I thought I heard you say, based on the amount of rounds we could do, it actually was up a point. So isn't, I mean, to me, that's the most fascinating part. That seems to indicate in my optimistic attitude that, well, people who like golf are going to get out whenever they can. Yeah, I agree. And, and that's one of the reasons we invented weather impact tracking was to kind of sort out that fact from fiction, which is, where is the consumer base and their interest flagging versus the interest is still there? It's just they can't, the, the constraint of our sport is it's constrained by weather and daylight. So, and the other thing, just to segue into a point you had asked about earlier, so the golfer franchise uh, declined by about 100,000 golfers. So as we look at it, um, the good news, bad news is that was down, um, but we've just come off of three years where we were losing, you know, several hundreds of thousands of golfers up to a million golfers. So the other encouraging thing, in addition to the utilization being up uh, after factoring out weather, is that the golfer base erosion is kind of screeching uh, to a slower one. As I look at it, 20 million looks like it's going to be some sort of support point here um, for the golfer base. So I think there are some encouraging notes there, but we're definitely not out of the woods yet. Well, not out of the woods relative to us continuing to lose golfers, but I thought I heard you say it's starting to shallow out. Is it shallowing out because now that we've changed the way we count people participating with the virtual golf component or is it shallowing out because people are actually taking up the game or not dying as quickly why why is it why do you think it's shallowing out yeah we really don't know the answer in the annual survey to that i mean there are two schools of thought one is we've lost all of the casual golfers in other words the people who tried the sport they weren't really hooked on it they were just kind of there 
So one school of thought would be uh, we've lost about 10 million golfers in the past decade, and that's we had all of these people who were kind of interested, but then they've fallen away. But we don't see anything in the numbers that really tells us definitively whether it's that or whether our player development efforts are working. Uh, I've not, as I've written about several times, I've not yet seen any of our national programs produce any quantitative proof um, that we're having huge success in attracting higher numbers of golfers than we were before the whole Golf 2020 thing began back in 2000. Well, that's a perfect segue to you, Stuart, because you wrote about this in the March 2019 issue of your Pellucid Perspective. And for those of you that aren't aware of Jim and Stuart's work, I'd encourage you to go to uh, their website, and we'll certainly give you more information about that at the end of the episode. But Stuart, in addition to the numbers of golfers going down, you guys said in that article so deftly that it's more competitive for fewer rounds. So we're not losing facilities to compensate for the, you know, the fact that even though we're losing people regularly, we still have too many golf courses. It it looks like the way people play golf isn't linked to population growth anymore. There's a number of factors uh, involved, including how these facilities are staying open. Well, there are two factors at work. Number one, we have 60% of the golf being played by people that are 55 and older. So you have to figure that into the mix. And that was the whole baby boomer effect that was supposed to send golf to new heights. It's turned out that All it's done is stabilize rounds demand. As people age, they play more golf, and the baby boomers are definitely doing that. And we have more people in the 55-plus age group now as golfers than we did 20 years ago. And that also, those habitual golfers or addicted golfers, whatever you want to call them, are playing, you know, 30 rounds a year. When the weather is bad, they just don't play, and they but they don't make that round up. So it tells why the rounds demand has followed weather for the last seven or eight years. Then the number of golf courses that are out there, you know, we're closing golf courses at about 1% a year, and the rounds demand has been going down a little more than that. So that just tells you that there are fewer rounds divided among you know, fewer golf courses, but the rate of decline in both is greater in rounds demand than it is in course supply. How is it, and I know I've asked Jim this question before, and so glad to have you here, Stuart. How are these facilities holding on? I mean, I, I know that when you get into sort of corporate golf management, I know you guys work with Kemper, and, and certainly there's efficiencies uh, when, when you can scale up a little bit in the golf course industry and sort of the way products are purchased and the way golf can be priced and contracts negotiated with municipalities. Certainly there are profitable operations in golf that I know you guys work with, but there seems to be um, a, a, bun- a bunch of golf courses that I visit, and I, you wonder how they're holding on. They're 30 years from their irrigation system last done. The cart paths are breaking down. The restaurants and the things inside are not doing so good. Um, how are these facilities managing, Stuart, to stay in business? Well, Jim and I do a lot of municipal work, too. And, I mean, the whole industry is suffering from a lack of capital expense as you go, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of deferred capital expense. 
that as people have tried to tighten their belts, they've just cut corners where they can and cut maintenance expenses where they could. They've put increased pressure on the superintendents to produce. You have the other dynamic that the expenses of maintaining a golf course continue to increase, but the competition restricts the price that you can charge for the product. So the the superintendents really get caught in a squeeze. They do. And and I'll just add, since you brought it up, because it looks like to me there's a confluence of issues that I would love to get both your perspectives on. And that is from a landscape management perspective, golf as a form of professional land management is facing what every other form of land management is facing. And that is that the weather is getting extreme. We're, We're seeing the kinds of extremes that are, as you guys have said, and Jim, you said earlier, the weather was the reason, right? We had extreme weather, and in places where it can have an impact, it had a a big impact. And at the same time, these deferred maintenance operations, right, these deferred capital expenses, we are getting longer dry periods and then two inches of rain, which then either challenges your irrigation system or your drainage system, which we saw both examples of that in a year because climate change is giving us that in these places where weather can have an impact. Are the smartest people you're working with, right, and I'll ask you to delve into your client list, are the smartest people you're working with thinking about the confluence of these things now that they better make an investment in something, you know, whether it's uh, to redo the, the landscape or upgrade the maintenance, the weather is definitely telling us we're moving in this direction. So Jim, let me start with you. How do you answer somebody that's thinking about, should I make these investments and is this going to be good for the next 10 years? Yeah, I think what I see out there, and and Stuart's forgotten more about this than I know, but I'll wait in first and then let him uh, jump on top. Uh, What I see is people are looking at that and saying, I have to come up with strategies to deal with um, extreme water conditions in a short period of time, extreme dryness, et cetera. The challenge is that they're just operating on razor-thin margins out there, as you mentioned, We've been in this period for over a decade now where we're oversupplied in the industry, and what happens there is we have no pricing power, and hence no pricing power means that our budgets are getting squeezed, and the superintendents are at the brunt of that because they own the largest portion of the budget. Mm -hmm. So you've got kind of the um, irresistible force meets immovable object here that they understand and realize and are making proactive recommendations to the courses that we need to do things to mitigate the extremes and weather that we're seeing more of. But at the same time, the people who run the facilities are saying, with what money? (laughs) So that's kind of the challenge that we've gotten. As Stuart said, you know, a lot of it is becoming deferred CapEx. Mm -hmm. And so the the superintendents are doing a great job with Band-Aids, bubblegum, paper clips, Uh, to keep this thing together and come up with mitigation strategies. But you're right, they're not making and they're not able to make the equipment investments that they really should be making, which are the better solution. Stuart, what are your thoughts? Well, the net result of this, Frank, is, as you pointed out, we're presenting a less presentable product today because of the deferred CapEx and cutbacks in the day-to-day expenses that the superintendents get to work with. So we're actually, you know, seeing a decline in the quality of the product we're presenting to the golfer. And part of the issue, you know, when we do surveys for our golf course clients, the number one reason that a course gets selected by a golfer has always been course condition. 
relative course condition. Right. So let me let me push on you uh, as we wrap up this segment, Stuart, because I visit an inordinate amount of private country clubs, and I would tell you that they're in a different kind of race. They're in what's almost I would characterize as an arms race to get the trendy architect or do the Billy Bunkers or restore and renovate and those sorts of things. I see it happening at the other end. I think they bragged about the amount of money spent in course renovation. I think a billion dollars over, what, 10 years or something like that. So can you just speak for a minute or two about the dichotomy, if you will, of the situation you described versus the country club? Well, the country club as you say, is a little bit different animal, but the arms race that they're in for green speed and, you know, fairway conditions, tee box conditions and stuff, they're facing the same kind of expense escalation and pricing power. I mean, the the private course market is competitive too. But when we study the course closures over the last 10 years, the predominant course closures are public golf courses that are privately owned. The member equity clubs that are owned by their members, and there are about 4,000 of those across the country, the closure rate is very, very low compared to the national closure rate. So the private clubs are doing a pretty decent job. Now, I'll leave it to you as to whether the arms race that they're in is the right arms race to be in, Mm. but the private clubs are doing comparatively better. Okay, But again, you know, when you have conditions, deferred maintenance problems at municipal courses and public courses that are privately owned, where they're all scrambling, the golf course conditions, differences become exacerbated between private clubs and public courses. Hmm. So a golfer that is seeking good playing conditions, it's getting back to like what it might have been in the 19. 19- in 1960, for example, hmm. where the private club offered, you know, a significant variance in golf course condition to the municipal choices that were available in 1960. Yes. And in 1960, there weren't that many privately owned public golf courses. I mean, we, that's where we had significant overbuilding in hmm. that segment of the market. Especially as it was associated with the real estate boom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, public premium. So the whole idea of country club for a day, to Stuart's point, before the dichotomy was you had really nice private clubs, and that's where you got the superior playing condition, Mm -hmm. and you had munis, which Mm -hmm. were acceptable golf and average playing conditions. Mm -hmm. And into that became, got inserted these privately owned public facilities on the country club of a day competing against both the private clubs on the top end and the municipalities. And as Stuart mentioned, our problem was that that wasn't a bad thing. We just way overdid it. Well, yeah, this is the thing that we forget. I mean, if you don't study the history of it, the total mix of golf courses is flipped virtually 180 degrees. If You know, we do this, but in 1960, 65% of the golf courses were private. Another 25% were public, with about two-thirds of those being municipal, and then there were 10% that we would classify as resort-type courses. Today, the private sector is 27% of the available stuff. So they've gone from 65 to 27%. Where has the growth been? So I'm assuming that means All that... All in daily fee 
public access golf, virtually all. So somebody, and we're going to, I'm not going to go down this wormhole, but I'm going to laugh as I cut you guys off and not let you talk (laughs) about this. But of course we went down that road because of that company in Jupiter, Florida. That's, uh, but let's not digress. As you say in that article, I'm with Jim Copenhaver (laughs) and Stuart Lindsay. Uh, Jim is Pellucid Golf and Stuart Lindsay is Edge Hill Consulting. They work together to be two of the smartest guys I talk to on this program. And we'll be right back after our message from our sponsor. Sponsors at Dryject and Intelligro. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you. There and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear in traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Welcome back. Let's continue our conversation about the sort of business of golf with a pivot towards all the ideas we've ever had about improving golf. Um, And Stuart, you wrote a you know, a response to me, uh, I sent Jay Ravel. Jay Ravel is a, a self-described golf scribe. I uh, wrote a strategic plan for American golf in February of this year. And I sent it along. And what do you think? And, and, you know, the best thing to do in life is to send Stuart something provocative. There's just there are a few things in life that evoke a response uh, from a guy like Stuart more than an, uh, an idealist uh, that, that's looking at this. And so you reminded me about the barbershop quartet of um, improving golf, the walking exercise dog and clothes routine. And before I actually ask you to talk to me about skill development, I'm going to tell you a funny story about your partner and why I got interested in him. He wrote uh, recently, I had been interested for 20 years, but he wrote about his own experience about getting involved back in golf and lessons and how people followed up. And to listen to Jim describe the way he was uh, onboarded to the game of golf, to me, probably tells a good story of why we have such a hard time getting anybody to want to take up this game. Jim described sort of being left out to dry a little bit with, you know, maybe some help, maybe some not. I'll let him clarify. But, but Stuart, I think we're not so good in the golf shop of onboarding people as we'd like to be. Uh, before I call them sweater folders and denigrate the entire profession, uh, can you speak a little bit about the role that skill development could play in improving our numbers in golf? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, I've been lucky. You know, I watched a man for 35 years do more good teaching golf than anybody I know. He introduced more women and more uncoordinated lawyers, doctors, and CEOs of Fortune 500 people than anybody I know. In addition to teaching a bunch of tour players, and he was the first professional PGA National Professor Teacher of the Year. So I watched him onboard people into golf. And if you think I'm grumpy, you should have seen him. <laughs> Is that Manuel? <laughs> Manuel Delatore. But, but anyway, the onboarding of people, the PGA gets a bad rap in, in some cases because all across the country, there are PGA professionals that are running junior clinics at private clubs, at public golf courses. They're donating their time to junior high FIED programs and providing clubs and introduction. There's a lot more of that going on than they get credit for. So I'm, you know, I'm not going to talk about the sweater folders and all that kind of stuff. There are a lot of PGA professionals out there that are real dedicated teachers and have done some good for the game. Problem is, only about 17% of the people that get involved in golf ever take a lesson. So there's a disconnect there. And people tend to respond. It's like, you know, I don't mean to get too esoteric here, but Bertrand Russell was a famous philosopher made a lot of wisecracks about golf over the years. But the one thing he did say was people enjoy things they're good at, hmm. whether it's philosophy or bricklaying, and playing golf is no exception. So the onboarding of golf and making people feel welcome into the game includes some skill development. And we aren't getting people good enough at golf fast enough to where they can enjoy the shot euphoria and the you know, all that kind of stuff. So we really need to address golf instruction. Wait a second. We got a million programs. We got First Tee. We got We Are Golf. We've got, you know, Get Ready Golf. We've got all these programs. I mean, I was at Cranberry Golf Club uh, run by Casper Golf. And they have first tee programs there, and, and the clubs come out, and, and we get them excited, and we got these young people, and we've been doing the first tee, of course, for since Tiger Woods started winning, you know, many years ago. So we have these uh, player development programs, Stuart. Uh, obviously, you talked about a few PGA professionals that are, are sort of reaching out into the community. How come the numbers don't seem to reflect it? Well, here here's... The, the real issue, you know, introducing kids to golf is great. And actually, we're doing a great job of doing that. I mean, in terms of the numbers of kids we get introduced to golf. But what we forget is that from age 16 to pick a number, 25, there are all kinds of alternative recreational pursuits that these kids are, are available, you know, whether it's soccer or basketball, football, lacrosse, field hockey. You name it, they're getting exposed to those team sports in high school and uh, many in college, either at the club level or whatever, intramural level. You know, they get taken away from golf for a while. But when they can't get nine friends together to have a softball team in a league or their bodies start breaking down or whatever it is from the age of 25 on, that's when people get attracted to golf. We, we looked at that in the state of the industry first a few years ago. 
in the primary attraction age for golf is 25 to 40. That's when the baby boomers took it up 25 years ago, and that's what's missing today. Okay, so that's what you're suggesting. You're suggesting that those sort of national player development programs have not been targeting the right people or they've not been using the right strategy or we don't have facilities and golf courses that if you stink at this game, you can play. Well, it's a combination of all the above. Right at the heart of it is the model. And when we talk about the millennial generation that's now 25 to 40 or whatever, we pick pick their ages, we aren't responding as an industry to the way they purchase stuff. Hmm. Now, these people grew up in the age of Google where Google gives them something for free and they get used to using it and they've got to have it, as opposed to the pay-for-instruction model that we use in the industry. Hmm. Now, interestingly enough, I mean, someone just sent me a thing saying, and this will lead into this digital golf stuff, or as Jim calls it, golf retainment. <laughs> On National Golf Day, which is next Tuesday, Top Golf announced free instruction on Tuesday, April 30th. Now, I would argue, why aren't you offering that every day? Hmm. Put someone on your staff and pay it. People are going to come back to play something they're good at. So can I give you a personal example before we go down the, the virtual discussion with Jim? Um, sure. my, my kids, uh, were growing up, uh, up in upstate New York, not a mountainous region, but there was a, a ski club in school and I grew up in New York city. So I didn't have a lot of opportunity to ski. I'm, I'm at McDonald's with my kids, uh, when they were younger and I saw this little ticket there that said, Hey, come to Greek peak, show this ticket, pay 20 bucks. We'll give you a lesson and three days of skiing and rentals, Right. And guess what? Yep. Here I am a decade, 12 years later. I, I love ski. I mean, I don't get to ski a lot, but I tell you, I love skiing. My kids and I, it's become something that we do now that they've earned college. Uh, it's places we can meet and do things. So I, I, why? Okay, Stuart, <laughs> before we get to the virtual thumb, what the hell? <laughs> why can't we change the model? You make it so easy. What the hell? You and I aren't that Thanks. smart. You, you may not know this, but I'm a retired ski instructor. <laughs> but anyway, so rental, when Kathy Harbin first started running Get Golf Ready, which is a great program, by the way, the only thing wrong with it is there's no rental component. It's targeted to the right age group, It's and they've morphed it into more of a female initiative than they should. But anyway, the thing missing was a rental component. You expect someone to take a five-part introduction to golf and then go out and buy X number of dollars worth of equipment? Ridiculous. But we've been talking about that since since Get Golf Ready started. And I think that, I mean, the other thing, Stuart, you've talked about is, I mean, you used to be able to see, if you went out to a golf course, you would see the pro occasionally what I call walking the line. So basically it's just take the golf professional, and to Stuart's point, you don't have to give away all the lessons for free. But if you're out there walking the line, you see people, and you can give them a tip or two. I mean, that's an introductory conversation to, hey, that was a good improvement there. You know, if, if we work together a little bit, I think I could help you even more. And you just spend a little bit of time every day walking the line, and, and it just seems like the average PGA professional, 
uh, is unable or unwilling to do that today. So simple stuff like that could also help. Well, you know, I don't mean to plug something, but there is a company out there that's a management company veteran that was very successful, retired. He paired up with a guy, a PGA professional, and their whole premise is to hire a full-time golf instructor whose job it is to give free instruction. They pay him a salary and he gives free instruction. Well, listen, let's make this pivot now because I think you've, you know, you've certainly said a fair amount about what we think we can do to at least make the course welcoming. There's a whole variety of things we could talk about, fellas, about course setup and, and what the superintendent's role is in that. And I wouldn't mind getting to that at some point. But I do want to talk about the latest chart I saw that, that, that indicated how golf is growing now that we are counting uh, what, what they call virtual golf or off-course golf. Um, and I guess, Jim, this is where we come back to you as a lead, and I'm sure Stuart's going to have an opinion about it. But certainly the recent data I've seen that showed this enormous increase in off-golf participation, but as we've already talked about, relatively flat numbers to on-course. You've indicated, and Stuart said, about court, uh, club rental and the equipment needed. Top Golf provides that. It provides the fun factor that we think is imperative in golf. So it looks like it has all the components to, to help us get people or at least count those people as golfers. Heck, tennis counts pickleball as tennis players. So why can't we count top golf people as uh, golfers? So uh, I don't want to transition completely away from skill development, but it seems like top golf would be a place where that could actually happen in a fun way. Is that leading to selling golf clubs or giving them golf clubs and getting them on the golf course, Jim? Yeah. So uh, the April issue of the uh, Outside the Ropes, uh, it took me 5,200 words to address this. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do it in two minutes, and there's two, uh, two components to it. I'll address the first one, um, which is kind of how do you think about the people who play at Top Golf and, and where do they fit in the continuum of golfers. And I'll let Stuart talk a little bit about, you know, people aren't seeing it, but Top Golf is actually adding additional capacity to an overloaded golf system and all the fun that that brings. So to your point, the NGF last year, and, and we saw it coming, did a pivot that said, hey, we got to start counting all of these off-course people who pick up a club and have some association with the game. And so the pivot became, instead of the golfer franchise declining by a million golfers a year, when you now count three groups, um, range-only participants, so people who only go to a range and never play around, simulator-only golfers, so people who play on simulators but never play around, and top golf only golfers. And as Stuart mentioned, I've coined them the golfertainment, so golfer and entertainment combined segment. And all of a sudden, NGF said, so now when we dump those 8 million people in there that grew to 10 million people last year, voila, we now have growth in the golf consumer franchise. So what I proposed in the, the latest article that I wrote is I said, let's think about these people in three different ways now. So let's call the one players. So players are the people who have played one-plus rounds of golf, and they're the people that support our $27 billion industry of 15,000 golf courses across the country. 
And then I have what I would call golfers, and in golfers I would put that second group of people, which are the range-only folks and the simulators. And the reason I make that distinction is they pick up a club, they have some knowledge of the various clubs in a bag, loft, lie, distance, shot, ball flight, blah, 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 blah. So those are people who have embraced the game to the extent that they do understand that, they just don't take it to the course. And then the third group of people that, that I call participants, which are these people who are participating in golf attainment, and then beyond those folks, you've got what I call the spectators, which are all the people who watch it on TV or read about it in the news, but don't go to a golf attainment place, don't play simulator or range, and don't play the game. So as I look at it, all of those people are worthwhile and, and beneficial to us, but I think the myth that's, that's being uh, attempted in the industry is that a majority of people who participate in top golf or golf attainment will be converted to players. And my sense is there's no quantitative proof, and if I had to bet my next paycheck, I would bet that the portion of people that we will convert from top golf and those types of things into playing the actual game of golf will be less than 10% and will probably be low single digits. So as I look at it, and, and the article is, is top golf accretive or dilutive to golf? And the title is, yes. <laughs> it's accretive in that it's exposing people and creating awareness, and that's good for, you know, multiple reasons. But it's dilutive to, to the core of our game, which is the people who run golf courses and all the people who supply stuff to that. And for the NGF to be out there ballyhooing that as the next generation of golf, if I were John Deere or Toro or any of those other folks who pay them pretty healthy money, I would reconsider that if I were the NGF. Well, before I let Stewart have a comment about that, can't we assume that that model won't work? If you looked at the way you stratified it, you'd put the recent excitement of Tiger Woods' resurgence as a professional player and sort of the transformative nature that all of a sudden over the Easter table, uh, everybody, people don't even like golf. They say, hey, did you see Tiger Woods won? I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> if you're in golf, you see that Tiger Woods wins. But Tiger Woods won for a long time, a long time ago, right through all this losing of golfers. So we certainly have evidence that the spectator portion is not an indication, Jim, of people taking up the game. Well, yeah, absolutely. So Tiger's resurgence helps top golf, which are people who might dip back into it and say, hey, that was kind of neat and interesting. And it helps ratings and people who might tune into a tournament. So it helps kind of the golf entertainment and the spectator sphere of consumers. I don't think it does anything for the range simulator or actual golfers. Stuart? Yeah. You know, that if you study the history again, the biggest boom time in golf actually was between 1960 and 1970. We added more golf courses as a percentage of the base in those 10 years than we did even in this latest boom between 1990 and 2005. And that was due to Arnold Palmer. Okay, and then we had a, we had a little low in the action. People will tell you we had a depression in golf in the late 60s and early 70s in terms of the failure of a lot of golf courses or the conversion of golf courses that were built as private that became public. And that was due to Arnold Palmer. And Jack Nicholas, who was more Tiger-esque in terms of his dominance, he presided over the decline 40 years ago. And Tiger presided over the decline we had from 2000 on. So, you know, he didn't turn pro until 1996. 
So everybody that talks about the Tiger phenomenon, that really applies to PGA Tour purses and the number of people that watch on TV, but did not impact participation nearly as much as people think. So, Stuart, let me give you some chances to talk about what I think ties in with your thoughts of skill development, which also probably includes uh, the fun perspective. Certainly, uh, Jim Copenhaver have had these talks. We, we Last time we were on, Jim, we were talking about wearing a Fitbit while you were walking to get a sense of the amount of exercise that you're going to get. But Stuart, you know, obviously these golf retainment places, Top Golf, are going to maybe dilute and there's going to be a capacity. There's the metrics of that. I'd actually like to just leave that to the side, if you wouldn't mind, and, and talk back about skill development and the importance of making golf fun. And why, why does golf have to be so much torture uh, all the time? Why does it? It almost feels like I talk to people who play golf who like when they four putt. There's still this sort of culture in golf that it's like, well, if it's fun, it must not have been good golf. Well, what's the old expression? Misery loves company. (laughs) I don't think it's a business model, though. It shouldn't be a business model. Well, you know, it is to a certain extent. I mean, golf has never been for everybody and, and probably never will. But there's a certain part of the population that that gets introduced to golf and then a certain part of that that becomes, you know, where the bulk of the revenues come from. The question is, you know, we've got 9 million fewer of those today than we did 15 years ago. So can we make them more accessible? Can places like the Cradle and the Sandbox and maybe, like Jay Ravel says, maybe a couple of holes around the corporate park, do you envision a pickleballization of golf, uh, if you will, a sort of shrinking of it? to make it easier and quicker? If nothing is done, we're going to see that anyway. The real question would be, and this is where, you know, it's a problem because Top Golf and all the clones that are going to show up, you know, the drive shacks and the mm-hmm. golf and big shots that a lot of the management companies have staked some uh, dollars and investments in, they've got tea space to fill. So their first priority is to run a profitable golf retainment facility. You know, are they going to encourage their golfers to leave that facility and go play on a green grass? You know, they can talk a good game, which they do, Top Golf and, you know, the NGF have a nice, cozy relationship and talk about all the potential. But uh, what people are forgetting is that the prime usage period of Top Golf and these other golf retainment things are when it's dark. And this is a big asset. So are they competitive? Yes, they're all competing for dollars and time. But could they be more cooperative? They certainly could be. Do I hold out much hope that they will be? No. Yeah, coming back to your point, uh, one of the things that Stuart enlightened, enlightened me to is the whole concept of match play and handicaps that the industry has forgotten about which is, you know, if you want to put fun back in the game, the biggest thing that drives fun out of it, in my mind, for people like me or average golfers, is going out and fighting par. And Stuart has, has educated me and said, you know, when we got rid of match play or really de-emphasized it, he said we lost a lot of the fun factor, and we could bring that back relatively quickly and easily. Well, not only that, we lost the heart, because that's where, you know, golf has always been promoted as a, a game where people are varying ability levels could play together and compete. Mm. And 
as we slowly, you know, watch match play become less and less a part of the golf landscape, we're losing the heart of golf. Well, Jim and Stuart, thank you both so much for talking with us, and thank you for the great service you do for our industry, and of course your clients smart enough to hire you. Thanks, Frank. We appreciate the invite. Jim Copenhaver is the president and founder of Pellucid Corporation, offering clear solutions for the business of golf, and Stuart Lindsay, the president of Edge Hill Consulting Group based in Wisconsin. They've been outspoken critics of many of golf's mainstream initiatives by using analytics. For me, they've been trusted progressive colleagues for over two decades. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at DryJack, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, and Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. Frankly Speaking is recorded and produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to program manager Eleanor Geddes, marketing and business John Kiger, and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.